The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. home. Kevin, go ahead. Can you hear us? Coming to you from suburban Cincinnati live outside the home of Brian Pillman. I'm Kevin Kelly, where in just a few moments I'll be conducting a very special live interview with Brian Pillman. Now, this uh, uh, remember that this interview was announced last week on Raw. And in the wake of the announcement, Stone Cold Steve Austin threatened to show up here tonight live at Brian Pillman's home in suburban Cincinnati. Now, Mr. They Pillman often say that the most exciting things in pro wrestling happen outside the ring. Right. Usually when they say this, they're talking about the real life stuff. They're not usually talking about promos, but think about your wrestling memories. Some of the most memorable wrestling moments of all time have happened in interviews or pre-taped segments. You know, they're not all great, not by a long shot. For every Austin 316, there's a thousand, you know, something mean jeans. And for every barbershop window, there are a thousand finger pokes and empty threats. But the best outside the ring segments are setups for even better in ring moments. You know, what's Hogan slamming Andre without Andre ripping off Hogan's cross necklace on Piper's pit? But most of those types of things happened outside the ring, but inside the arena, or at least on the WWE soundstage. When things spill out into the real world, well, things can get a bit hairy, a bit unpredictable. It's like the further you get from the source of wrestling's black magic, the less potent it becomes. But not this night. No, th there was nothing, nothing like what happened far away from the wrestling ring on Monday Night Raw on November 4th, 1996. Let's take you yesterday, ladies and gentlemen. We are live now, suburban Cincinnati, with Brian Pillman along with Kevin Kelly. And, of course, everyone knows of the injury sustained rather, uh, at the... Well, WWF Superstars about a week ago, and uh, Kevin, would you uh, proceed with the interview? Yes, uh, Vince, it's a very tense scene here in suburban Cincinnati tonight. Brian, I have to ask you, after the unprovoked savage attack last week on WWF Superstars, you had, I understand, reconstructive surgery once again on your ankle. Can you give us the prognosis? What have the doctors told you about your recovery? Look, Kelly, I'm alive and well. I got an excellent prognosis for 97, but let's talk about Mr. Austin's prognosis. I've been in bitter feuds many, many times in this sport. There's a fine line between business and private lives. Austin, you've crossed that line. You've made this personal. And now we're operating on a whole different set of rules, son. Stone Cold Steve Austin was feuding with his old friend and tag team partner, Brian Pillman. In storyline, Austin broke Pillman's ankle. More on that later. Because Pillman seemed giddy about the return of Austin rival Bret Hart. When they announced they would interview Pillman at his home in suburban Cincinnati, Austin said he'd show up there and hurt Pillman again. Austin was just finding his footing at this point as stone cold, and obviously trying to test the limits of his character's murderousness, and, not incidentally, the limits of what they could do on a pro wrestling show. You Actually, can't move. Kev, if I can inter interject this, uh, I am, so I'm told that, uh, in fact, that we have uh, Mr. Austin circling the neighborhood, and I just wonder oh. whether or not from your standpoint, uh, Mr. Pillman, if you can hear me, it seems to me that considering your vulnerability with your wife, Melanie, 
And what, well, Steve Austin's very vulnerable as well. What, what, I not think what, do you his feel rage has blinded him to the fact that his best friend knows him better than anybody. Do you feel it? His strengths, his weaknesses, and certainly his fears. Notwithstanding your bravado, do you feel a hostage? Do you feel like you're a hostage in your own home tonight? Ah, Steve is a dead man walking because when Austin 316 meets Pillman. Oh, my God. Nine millimeter oh, clock. Oh, my God. I'm going to blow his serious straight to hell. Steve Austin's out there now, man. What? Austin is the provocateur here, but the real instigator is Pillman. You know, Pillman was called the loose cannon in WWE for his unpredictable boundary-pushing tendencies. And what happened in his house that night was squarely in his oeuvre. In this scene, Austin was invading Pillman's house, but on a deeper level, Austin was crashing into the reality-adjacent world that Pillman had created. Vince, all right, we heard Stone Cold Steve Austin outside. He's been making his way around all the way to the back of the house, screaming and yelling, Pillman's got this pistol out, and I don't know what the hell is going on here. This is ridiculous. Pillman's got this, um, what the, what the hell is that? Does somebody call the police? That's Austin. Get out of there, Steve, don't go in there. Don't go in there. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. I'm David Schumacher. I met Brian Pillman when I was one of the people responsible to bringing him for WCW. I had corresponded That's the voice of Paul Heyman. Heyman has had a number of roles in his long pro wrestling career. These days, you see him on TV as the advisor to WWE Unified Champion Roman Reigns. But he's probably most well-known for being the creative genius behind ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, the boundary-pushing indie wrestling outfit of the 90s. Before that, though, he worked in WCW as a manager and unofficial talent scout. Was there a moment where you looked at him in WCW and you said, oh, this isn't just a high flyer. This isn't just another guy who can fill a role. There's something deeper going on here. The first time I saw him in Calgary, which is why... I ended up reaching out for him while he was in Calgary he, when I was in Alabama. He filled the screen. The act that he was in, which was Bad Company, which was built around Bruce Hart, but I didn't notice Bruce Hart. I noticed Pillman, even when he was standing on the apron. He was so intense in interacting with the audience while standing on the apron that he couldn't help but steal the show. He owned the oxygen in the room. The attention just naturally went to him, even if he wasn't looking for it. Brian Pillman was a walking, whoa, who's that guy? Or more accurately, a leaping, flying, whoa, who's that guy? When he debuted in WCW, Pillman wasn't huge, but he was shredded. And his curly mullet was impeccable. His bingle striped trunks hinted at his brief career in the NFL. From Cincinnati, Ohio, weighing 220 pounds, the light heavyweight champion of the world, Brian Bryan! And he couldn't stand still. He was put in a very old-school, traditional role. There's a long line of undersized, good-looking baby faces that get a big reaction from getting beat up, particularly from the ladies. But no matter how many sympathy points they win, those guys are not necessarily seen as top dogs, as potential champions. With Pillman, though, it was hard not to see the potential. From the beginning, he had great awareness in the ring. 
he had an innate understanding of how to connect with the audience. Tom Zink was a classic, clean-cut, white-kneed babyface. From the days he was in Minnesota, with a great look, a fantastic body, a dropkick of a mile above, knew how to reach out to the audience, you know, begging for help from the dastardly villain that was beating down upon him. Tom Zink was a classic white-kneed babyface. They teamed him with Brian Pillman, nobody noticed Tom Zink. You have the villains pound on Brian Pillman. I'm watching Brian Pillman get pounded. You, you pound on Tom Zink. I'm watching Brian Pillman reach for the tag. And it wasn't just his charisma. It was his ability with a look, his timing on the look. He understood when the attention was going to be on him. And then he understood when the attention was not on him so that when it came back to him, he kept it. He just kept it. He just, he had one of those personalities, which is why when he teamed with Steve Austin, it it was such an interesting tag team because they both understood that once the attention was on them, they didn't want to let it up. And they would compete for that attention in not only a competitive way, but, and it's very difficult to explain to, to, to anybody who hasn't been in there with them both, but they never sabotaged the other. They complemented each other, and it ended up with the attention on both of them, which is why they were such a great tag team. Here's where the story gets interesting. For lack of anything better to do with either of them, WCW put Pillman and Austin together in a tag team called the Hollywood Blondes. The name has some built-in irony, since Pillman and Austin were from Ohio and Texas, respectively, but there was also a built-in history Other teams had used the name before them. Originally, and most famously, it was Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown who started the gimmick in the Southern US in the 70s. Roberts would eventually forsake Hollywood for Bad Street USA when he joined the fabulous Freebirds. The idea when Roberts and Brown did it was that claiming to be from Hollywood would be sure to get big boos from the red state crowd. It worked. It was a similar gambit for Pillman and Austin. To an audience that knew full well who these guys were, Embracing Hollywood was akin to Sergeant Slaughter embracing Iraq in 1990. Easy, cheap, heat. They did great work given the situation and had a memorable feud with Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, but the writing for both of them was on the wall. Hulk Hogan came to WCW in 1994, a year into the Hollywood Blondes run, and the main event seemed farther away than ever. Pillman made up with his old foes, Flair and Anderson, and joined the Four Horsemen himself, which would have been a big deal in anybody's career, but I'm gonna be honest, it felt a little like treading water for Pillman until, and this is a huge until, he started getting weird. The Horsemen are traditionally paragons of the sport, well-dressed, well-spoken, and usually utterly detestable. Pillman was an exception. He dressed like he hung out at a metal bar and he acted like he was a few rounds in. Just standing in the ring during a horseman promo, it's just like Heyman says, you can't keep your eyes off of him, even when someone else is talking. He was all antic energy. He looked like he was laughing to himself at times, his mind entirely elsewhere. And then came the really weird stuff. In a match with Eddie Guerrero at Clash of the Champions in 1996, Pillman freestyled a little, a little out of the ring heel work, and grabbed legendary color commentator Bobby the Brain Heenan by the shirt collar. Heenan had a history of neck problems, and he was completely caught off guard. His reaction was, well, predictable. No, what the fuck are you doing? Easy! 
The question was, did Pillman actually predict it? Did he do it on purpose? Here's Heyman again. I think he figured that out a long way. Oh, you know what? I know Bobby will freak out if I do that. I don't know if he planned it that far in advance or if it was just something impromptu. Brian could think on his feet. Brian was very, very adaptive thinking on his feet. And that's the type of thing that just, if you're constantly yearning to find something that works for you while you're out there, everything's a prop and everyone is a prop. I don't know if he decided that in advance or if he just seized the moment and it popped in his head and he went for it. What the fuck was he doing? The wrestling world asked in unison. Was that supposed to happen? For Brian Pillman, the question is more important than the answer. His next big feud was against Kevin Sullivan, a well-regarded, occasionally satanic wrestler who was, incidentally, the booker for WCW at this point. In the pro wrestling world, a booker is someone who sets the matches and helps come up with the storylines. Now, if you don't watch wrestling, and if you don't, thank you for listening, you might be wondering, isn't that a little weird to have someone who's an active wrestler also to be one of the decision makers? The answer, obviously, is yes, but the caveat is that these wrestlers, people like Sullivan and Dusty Rhodes and even Ric Flair, even when they were active competitors, they were often the best guys for the job. There would also sometimes be booking committees, a sort of firing squad technique to make decisions as a group. But at this point, Sullivan has the pencil, as they say in the biz. And as a fan, there were definitely moments during the preceding years when Sullivan and his Dungeon of Doom stable were feuding with Hulk Hogan that you would ask, wait, whose idea was this? But at this point, early in 1996, the fans were starting to smarten up. Think back to the first episode of the show about the curtain call. This was three months, just three months before that. Diehard fans were reading the newsletters and talking in the early internet chat rooms and calling hotlines, and they knew that Sullivan was in charge. But they didn't expect what happened at Super Brawl 6. Sullivan and Pillman were facing off in an I Respect You strap match, where they got to beat each other with leather straps, and the loser had to say that he respected the winner. Sullivan won, and so Pillman took the microphone. Man, I don't think this is what Aretha Franklin meant. you, Booker Man. He said, I respect you. Thank you. And he walked. And he walked out. And he walked. He said, I respect you. And he walked out. Wow. So Kevin Sullivan, the Taskmaster, will win it. The I respect you, that was the stipulation. That was conventional pro wrestling at work. But the word that came after that, Booker Man, that was a revelation. The Booker being acknowledged on the air was nearly unheard of, but it was the delivery that really sung. Pillman sold it as if he wasn't supposed to be saying it at all. And listen to how the announcers try to pretend it didn't happen. Every fan who was watching this at home had the same response as last time. Well, was it supposed to happen? The question is more important than the answer, but the answer, of course, was yes. Heyman, who was already pushing the boundaries of reality and kayfabe and ECW, Watched from afar with interest. It was very impressive because it was so well done. I've seen a lot of people attempt to do what at the time would have been considered ECW style storylines. And people weren't doing it well. They were doing it very well. The backlash against it from the announcers, the surprise that, oh, my, oh, 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 and by the way, coming up next. And meanwhile, something's transpiring in front of your very eyes and they're trying to change the subject. 
just the subtleties of it. It was a very over-the-top scenario that was played with certain subtleties that emphasized the over-the-top scenarios. Both Brian and Kevin really had figured it out and how to play this off. Uh, Kevin was inspired by what we had done in ECW with the Sandman and Tommy Dreamer. When we did the thing where uh, Tommy Dreamer hit the Sandman, uh, knocked the Sandman's cigarette into the Sandman's eye and chained him in and the Sandman grabbing both eyes, he understood, wow, this is a, a whole different manner in which to present this industry. And, and Pillman, of course, was always looking to be ahead of the curve, always, from day one. Wanted to be far ahead of the curve. So, And he picked it up real fast. He had it figured out. Next comes an even weirder story. Because in case you hadn't noticed, the career of Brian Pillman is a collection of stories. It's an anthology. It's a narrative that exists in a series of almost indescribable, inexplicable incidents. It's urban legend brought to life. So after he went after Heenan's neck, after he outed Sullivan as the booker in front of the world, then Pillman gets fired. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. No, he didn't get fired for the booker man thing. He got fired so that fans would think he got fired for the Booker Man thing. He was building a character that was unpredictable, the loose cannon character, a character that didn't play by the conventional rules of pro wrestling. And so he couldn't just get suspended. A million wrestlers have been suspended over the years, and everybody always knows it's a storytelling contrivance. No, Pillman had to be fired. And to make it believable to all the fans who had the inside dirt, well, Pillman wanted to be fired for real. He convinced WCW VP Eric Bischoff to fire him for real, for dramatic effect. Here's Bischoff from WWE's Loose Cannon documentary. We pretty much agreed that he was going to go to ECW and then come back to WCW uh, after six months or a year, whatever the case was. Unfortunately, you know, that never happened. And like that, he was gone. <laughs> As Pillman said back then, Battle of the Carnies. Yes, the whole concept would be that Brian Pillman would be fired. And Pillman wants, you know, saying, oh, we've been doing everything else so legit. You have to legitimately fire me. You have, you have to give me my termination papers. And, of course, once he had his termination papers, he got them to Vince McMahon saying, yeah, my termination, I got my release. I'm allowed to negotiate anywhere. Let's negotiate. So it was all part of the plan. Brian Pillman worked Eric Bischoff and worked his, like, turned his angle into free agency, real-life free agency? I don't know if there was a carefully uh, executed strategy that was thought of in advance, like this was a premeditated way for Brian Pillman to negotiate with Vince McMahon to get his release, to escape what he felt was uh, the glass ceiling in WCW, or if along the way, oh, wait a minute, you know, you know what situation I'm in? This would be an interesting pivot. Why don't I go and ask for a legitimate release? I don't think these were, I think he was playing chess, move, counter, move, move, counter. I don't think he walked in with his first 10 moves well thought out. I think as the thing evolved and got bigger and bigger, he realized there were more moves for him to make and interesting moves at that. Then Kevin Sullivan called me. He said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We don't want him going to WWE, but we have no problem with him coming to you because he'll become such an underground sensation based off of this. And 
despite the animosity between WCW and ECW, we know you're going to book them right. We know you're going to enhance him. We know you're going to make him a bigger star. And we got no problem putting him in your hands. And we're not asking for anything in writing, anything guaranteed, except if you're going to beat him, just beat him once. Okay, you got it. And then Kevin said, I'll buzz you. And I, and only thing I asked for was one letter from WCW saying one time that I had the rights to use him and they, and they had no claim against it. I wanted to make sure I wasn't being set up. And ECW wasn't being set up. I got that letter. I kept it private. And we went for it. It was set up as much by Sullivan as it was by Pillman and me. Coming up, Brian Pillman's next chess move takes him into the ECW ring and out into the crowd. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. you heard <laughs> I like you as an announcer you know why because I just had an announcer in Atlanta Georgia take away my constitutional rights been fired by Eric Bischoff. So, free of his WCW contract, Pillman then shows up in ECW, curses out Eric Bischoff, and afterwards he pulls a fan out of the crowd and beats him up relentlessly in the ring. That was staged. It's weird saying this, but the fan beatdown was the silliest part of the whole thing. Every other moment is just perfect. It's believable. And yeah, it was planned, but ECW in those days was just crazy enough that you thought it might be willing to let anything fly. Here's all I can think to say. In the immortal words of Bobby the Brain Heenan, what was he doing? Or maybe more appropriately, why was he doing it? Or better yet, how was he doing it? Because he went to his boss and asked him to fire him, for real. He said so that it would actually seem real when he went to another company, but really, probably, he was getting his contract torn up so that they'd have to write a new one, a bigger one. And if they didn't do it, well, maybe the competition would. This is unbelievable stuff. In character, it's one of the wildest stories ever told in the wrestling ring. In real life, it's one of the wildest stories ever told outside of it. I mean, I don't know which scale I'm supposed to be grading this on, and I guess with Pillman, that's always the point. 
Paul Heyman says this was just in the air back then. This is the mid nineties. Everybody was tricking everybody. Who's zooming who here? You know, and and they were all playing each other. And and, and again, something else to consider is that Pillman also was hoping to get a big offer from WWE that would force WCW to match it. I don't know how much he was looking to escape WCW as he was looking for the opportunity to get a, a huge contract. He also knew WWE had the reputation of being the big man territory. Austin had not hit yet. So Brian felt that there was a glass ceiling in WCW in terms of creative, a glass ceiling in WCW for him in terms of money. And he was trying to break through both. The gimmick didn't stop when Pillman got backstage. Pillman was like a pro wrestling Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, method acting mental instability into the locker room and out into the world. He freaked out other wrestlers with peculiar behaviors, you know, tying his pants up with twine or eating chocolate cake by the fistful or screaming call 911 repeatedly after a scripted injury. It doesn't sound like much. You have to hear the guys tell these stories. But if you do, it's really about the persistence, the grinding repetition of some of these pranks. Once he started in on a bit, he wouldn't stop and made everyone in the room uncomfortable. He relished in that discomfort. He even made it impossible for Heyman to book him in a match, both because Pillman was deliberately unreliable and because, well, I mean, he could have left for WCW or WWE at a moment's notice. He was a wild man behind the scenes even in college. But a loose cannon, I don't think he truly was. I actually think he was very cognizant of the moves that he was making. And once they came up with the loose cannon character, he did everything he could to persuade and or convince not only the audience, but even those backstage, this is who he had really morphed into. He wanted that reputation. And he also felt it would help him in negotiations because they would think he was out of his mind, but he's an attraction in an age where in this hyper-competitive environment of the Monday Night Wars, you can't do without your attractions. And the last thing you wanted to do was let the other guy get an attraction. For Brian, it was exhilarating. He, he thought it was a lot of fun. He, he was enjoying doing that. Hey, this guy's known me for 10 years. Watch me make him think I'm out of my freaking mind. I knew at any moment I was going to have to bail out of it which is why I kept every week almost a self-inclusive story that if he just disappeared, we'd be moving on just fine. And if we were to have ever pulled the trigger on it, because he had his wreck while he was in ECW. And if we were to have ever pulled the trigger on it, I wouldn't have announced the match until the week of the match to lock it in. And I would have made sure that I would have had access to him for the match. So we wouldn't advertise it and then WCW pulls him. But as we were heading towards that scenario is when he had his wreck. The wreck. On April 15th, 1996, Brian Pillman fell asleep at the wheel and wrecked his Hummer, demolishing his ankle in the process. He was thrown over 40 feet from the car and was in a coma for a week, which is terrible, obviously. But the ankle for a wrestler, particularly a high-flying wrestler, one of the American innovators of the aerial style imported from Mexico, the ankle was a huge deal. And the doctors had to fuse his ankle in a walking position. 
This, I guess, is where I should probably mention the substance abuse allegations. Pillman's use of drugs and alcohol has been discussed pretty openly over the years by his friends and coworkers and even his wife. Ken Shamrock has a story in his memoir where he and Pillman arrive together at a restaurant after a road trip and Pillman can't walk or even leave the car because, according to Steve Austin, according to Shamrock, Pillman had taken too many painkillers. Pillman's wife, Melanie, has talked about his painkiller addiction, too. And according to those close to him, dealing with the injuries from the wreck only worsened his dependencies. I knew Terry Allen very well when I was a photographer and I was a kid. So when that wreck happened in 86, I, I, I just remembered the heaviness that it brought down on everyone in the industry, that it was just about to be Magnum's moment. And in a blink of an eye, it's over. And it felt the very same way. No one knew if he was going to wrestle again. It was a bad wreck. For the record, Magnum TA, Terry Allen, was a wrestler in the NWA in the late 80s who was slated to become the next big thing. It was obvious watching him on TV. He was incredible and right on the cusp of greatness when he wrecked his Porsche and never wrestled again. For a lot of fans of my generation, it was the first real tragedy we experienced. Back to Pillman, though. After his wreck, the first thing he did, according to Dave Meltzer, quote, was to lie to everyone, including me. He said as bad off as he was, the doctors said he would be able to wrestle, and after healing, his ankle would be at 100%, end quote. Whether or not anybody believed him, WWE signed him to a contract anyway. Pillman had offers from both companies, but apparently Bischoff wouldn't fully guarantee the deal because of the injury. Vince McMahon guaranteed it, so WWE got Pillman. It was a logical fit in a lot of ways. WWE was emerging from the doldrums by giving opportunities to smaller, character-rich wrestlers who had been previously underutilized. When he got to his new locker room, as Bruce Prichard tells it, well, Pillman's reputation preceded him. By the time Brian came to work with us, he had had this loose cannon persona, which he portrayed truly as a loose cannon, where people didn't know when Brian was on, when Brian was off. And that's the voice of Bruce Pritchard, WWE producer, writer, Vince McMahon's right-hand man, a little bit of everything. He was part of the creative team that booked Pillman's entrance into WWE, and he was on-the-ground producer for The Gun Angle. He had perpetuated this character so much in and out of the ring that even Brian's peers sometimes wondered, Brian working me, or is, is he really crazy? So... When you have that, that's, that's a special, it's a special trait to have your peers believe. That means the audience believes. And it was a very easy character to believe. Man, he's not all there. So let's skip ahead to the next story. Pillman had been buddying up on screen to Steve Austin, who was on a tear of his own. See episode two. But when Bret Hart announced his comeback to the WWE, Austin saw a rival the rival who would eventually elevate him to the main event, but Pillman saw an old friend. See, Pillman trained in the Hart family territory in Canada. Of course, it was Pillman's inability to hide his excitement for Hart's return, even as he tried to hang on to his friendship with Austin. That, that was the real magic here. It was a sort of unhinged giddiness that, well, made you wonder what the fuck he was doing. Finally, on the October 27th, 1996 episode of Superstars, Austin had had enough. And you can listen to me, you little crippled freak. Hey, come on. Everybody knows 
that at one time I carried you to a world championship. Everybody knows at one time you rode in my back pocket. Wow. Madison Square Garden, Bret Hart, you're going to find out. Bret Hart's going to find out. The whole damn world's going to find out. I will do exactly what I say. I am going to whip his ass. To me, it's one of the most realistic pro wrestling beatdowns ever because it's just so straightforward and so brutal. There's no special moves, no flamboyant stuff, just stomping and dropping fast forearms and elbows and then whacking Pillman's hurt ankle with Pillman's own cane. Then, Austin does the unthinkable. He grabs a folding chair from ringside and wraps the hinge around Pillman's hurt ankle, and he stomps on it. Just visualize that. Then he goes up to the second rope and jumps off and stomps on it again. There's a name for this in the wrestling world now. It's called Pillmanizing. When a chair is wrapped around a body part and stomped, it's a direct reference to this moment. Pillman's already hurt ankle was shattered again, which of course, since we're talking about Pillman, was reality too. Pillman had re-injured himself trying to get back into action, trying to keep up the facade that he wasn't that hurt to begin with. And this was the storyline explanation for why he was going to be out of action even longer. Low-key, maybe my favorite part of the whole thing, was when the great Jerry Briscoe, a legendary wrestler who was a front office worker slash security figure and was playing here a front office worker slash security figure, runs in to try to stop Austin, and Austin just sends him flying out of the ring, like Superman stuff. Which brings us back to the gun incident. Pillman is laid up on his couch at home, in a real cast from a real surgery he had following the chair incident, but not, of course, because of the chair incident. In storyline, he's recovering from the injuries he suffered at Austin's hands or feet. And Austin has promised to show up here, and Pillman, eyes wild, is ready for him. I think that when you look at, you know, and we were at Brian's house talking about it, and what would you do? Real life, not TV live, not make believe. Real life, what would you do? You're basically immobile from the waist down, with an ankle, can't really walk without the aid of a crutch. Your family's in your house. You've got a madman with a baseball bat coming into your house. If you have a baseball bat, that's not equal. What would you do? If you had a weapon, you're going to have a gun. That's an equalizer at that point. That's what I think anybody would actually do and that that was brian's pitch he's like what am i gonna do fight him i can't fight him i would i would do whatever i could you know and it was like do i take a shotgun out and uh and shoot him what would you do and you have to put yourself in that in that position of he's hurt he's wounded can't walk without a crutch he's in his house his family's in his house with him and you're going to protect them at all costs. That was the thinking behind it. I think that in the portrayal of that, that it was so realistic. And, you know, credit to, to Steve, credit to Brian, and that it was, it was so realistic that people lost track of this is a television show, this is an entertainment show. They were so good, they sucked the audience in. These are real people, this is really happening. 
Okay, you can see the logic. I can see the logic. But forever in pro wrestling, there was an unspoken no guns rule. Because if you pull a gun, well, where the hell do you go from there? There are anything goes grudge matches where there are no rules, no limits, and the worst weapon somebody pulls out is like a shovel. Even in the most hate-filled blood feuds, there's an implicit understanding that nobody's going to die. And even in the gnarliest matches, the plunder, great word, function more as signifiers than as offense. You know, you dump the bag of thumbtacks on the mat or, or you light a table on fire. That's a statement that this is deathly serious. In storytelling terms, a gun, a gun just wouldn't make any sense. Think about it. If somebody pulled a gun in a match, even if they didn't shoot their opponent, if they got tackled or whatever and had the gun removed, then what? I mean, does the character just get fired? Is that enough? And even if he does, well, then the storyline just shifts to the streets, right? I mean, if you want to kill somebody, it's presumably not limited to work hours. I'm losing the thread here, but that's the point. You pull out a gun, you lose control of the narrative. I, again, shedding my own old school skin in terms of trying to push forward a, a revolution, indeed an evolution of the industry. When I broke in, I was always told, whether it was by Kevin Sullivan or by Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler, whomever, I was always told never say the word gun because you don't want to put it in someone's mind to take a shot at you. So never say it. And I was sensitive to the word gun for many years because I had seen a couple of incidences where people had to be tackled pulling out a gun. Well, we had a shot fired in Dothan, Alabama at the Houston County Farm Center uh, during a particularly hot night in Alabama in 1988. And, you know, that's that was always the big fear as a heel. Like, man, someone was going to shoot me. So I was always sensitive to the word gun which I think is why I admired it even more because it was a taboo that was being broken that we hadn't thought of breaking. And since we, I mean, we threw down the NWA title. We, we opened the locker room door and, you know, it exposed the business. You know, we're, we're, we, we were calling out champions from the other promotions. We're breaking every taboo that there was. Who am I to criticize those who are breaking other taboos? Here, at Brian Pillman's house, WWE tried to control the most uncontrollable thing in wrestling. Well, the two most uncontrollable things, the gun and the guy holding it. The guy who went on live TV on a wrestling show and said, when Austin 316 meets Pillman 9mm Glock, I'm going to blast his sorry ass straight to hell. Like many episodes of Raw at the time, the in-ring action was pre-taped. But the segments at Pillman's home were live. They could have pre-taped them, but they wanted to have the excitement and energy of a live performance, or, I guess, a live home invasion. Everybody is here inside the house. Kevin Kelly, there's chaos there. I do not know where Stone Cold Steve Austin is right now. Had, uh, was any, what, what, did anybody sorry, fire a shot? Is, is anyone hurt? It's a crazy scene here inside the home. Did anybody get shot? And, and Brian Pillman being restrained by his friends. No one's been shot. What? Nobody's been struck by any of the any of the explosions. Do you do you know where Austin is? Vince, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Do you know where Austin is? I do not is? know where Steve Austin is. What was more damage? He saw the gun. Was he more saw damage? The gun and he left. Oh what? my God, he's back! Shoot me! Shoot me! God! Let him go! 
This was a very unique and very personal angle that we felt, man, you know, go to the extreme. Look, everybody looked at it too and, and saw the dangers in it and saw the, the potential aftermath of it. And, you know, we erred on the side of let's be controversial. Let's, let's be out there and get people talking uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. If we had it to do all over again, would we do it? No. The answer is no. Especially looking at it through 2022 glasses, it's like, yeah, yeah, well, that doesn't, that doesn't play well. But when you're in the moment in that time, in that day and time, and looking at everything and how the world was, it was edgy. It was definitely edgy and definitely controversial. What was the reaction from the network? They weren't happy. Uh, they knew ahead of time. I think that the reason they weren't they weren't really happy was because it was done so well. And <laughs> that, man, you felt it. There was a legitimacy to it. There was a there was a feeling of this has gotten out of hand. And we kind of wanted that uneasy feeling, but I don't think that we wanted the the distasteful feeling that we got. I knew what they were doing. I didn't. <laughs> I also understood they were going to get a lot of backlash for it. Again, th- these were innovative times, and in, in some ways, desperate times for WWE. I admired the balls it took to try to pull that off. I knew that they wanted to grab people's attention, and even if grabbing the attention required an apology or two, that's a very Vince McMahon, one step backwards, two steps forward type type of scenario. It was a Hail Mary to get attention, to get ratings, and to get people talking. But it was also a statement by WWE that they weren't just going to push boundaries in the ring. They were going to call everything you thought you knew about the rules and norms of pro wrestling into question. If Pillmanize didn't already mean something, you would say this was the Pillmanization of WWE, which is why this story, the story of the gun, is more than just a story. It's a culmination of stories. It's the Avengers endgame of wrestling. All of the individual chapters led up to this point and gave it so much more gravity. Because with another wrestler, a gun would have seemed hokey. It would have been empty. With Brian Pillman, anything was possible. And so even the most ridiculous stuff had weight. Legitimacy. What the fuck are you doing isn't just the reaction. It's the mission statement. Incidentally, this was also the first episode of Raw in its new time slot at 8 p.m., an hour earlier than before, meaning, hopefully, a broader, more family-friendly audience. Did the fans think it was real? And did you guys, you know... Pay attention to like how many phone calls the office got. I mean, what like what what would be the measure of like how the fans reacted? Well, I think uh, you know part of it is are they going to tune in next week, uh, which they did. But we we had an idea from from people that had called the the local police station, which they were informed ahead of time um, what we were doing. We had we had people there, and they were aware of it. We were able to tell people, no, it's a television show, and no one's in danger and we have officers on site, no need to call. But I think that when you just uh, go back and look at things from a good taste or not good taste, I, I don't think it was hindsight in good taste. I think at the time that it was something that we did to be real and be controversial and it fit. When you look at things, what would you do? You have to ask yourself a lot of times, how does this relate to the audience? 
if you're an audience member in your own home and someone is breaking in, and you're immobile, and your family's there, what would you do to protect your family in your home? All right. Get him out of here. Grab him, Kevin. Grab the gun. Grab the gun. Somebody get the gun. When the camera stopped rolling, what was the feeling in the house? Intense. <laughs> uh, intense. You know, the, the first the first thing was like, is everybody OK? Because, again, that door was absolutely brutal. And uh, Steve beat the hell out of the guys outside pretty good, too. It, it was more of, is everybody safe? Is everybody OK? And then, you know, from there, it's it's your because I can't see it. So I'm calling back. How did it look? Is everything good? And, and the initial reaction was, yeah, everything was great. And uh, it looked good. And we're monitoring the, the police because, you know, again, we had them there. And they're like, oh, yeah, now we had a couple calls. Everything's good. So we're thinking in our head, all right, man, A plus, we accomplished it. Not, and again, it's different when you look at it. And when you remove yourself from, from the position and you look at it, it was good television. It had it been on, you know, Miami Vice or uh, Hill Street Blues. You notice how I'm dating myself there? Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, Chicago 911, whatever the hell. I think that, you know, people would have accepted it. It would have been fine. But the fact that it was within the confines of a WWE show that they were like, ah, it's too far. The reaction from the network and the viewers was significant enough that something as rare as a gun getting pulled in pro wrestling happened. Vince McMahon apologized. Uh, no question about it. Responsibility rests squarely on my shoulders uh, as the chairman of the World Wrestling Federation. And on behalf of the World Wrestling Federation, for those of you who were offended, those viewers, we humbly apologize for the incident that took place last Monday night on Raw uh, in an effort to bring attention to a new time slot of 8 o'clock Eastern uh, there is no doubt that uh, we went overboard. Nonetheless, the actions and language of the individuals involved uh, was reprehensible, and we assure you and all of our viewers that something like this will never, ever happen again here in the World Wrestling Federation. In the end, the gun might have worked as a chapter in Pillman's anthology, and it works as a floating point of reference for the rise of the Attitude Era, but it didn't really work as a storytelling device. They left us wondering if someone had been shot and then answered that question in the final segment of the night with another cliffhanger. In the last segment, Pillman said, get out of the fucking way, live on the air. Let him go! I'm gonna kill that son of a bitch! Let him go! Let him go. Call the police! Call the police! Call the police! All right. It was a quintessentially Pillman moment. And just like the rest of the chaos that night, it was probably planned to heighten the realism. But it was also a concrete point of complaint for the network or for angry viewers. You know, if you could excuse the scene by saying it was like something out of Miami Vice, well, they don't say fuck on Miami Vice. The next week on Raw, be it from network pressure or whatever reason, they didn't even mention the incident. Austin appears to do an on-air interview and Vince reiterates the apology at the top, but there's no mention of the gun, no mention of Pillman, no context. A story is only meaningful in the context of the larger work. And sure, this could have been meaningful in story. You know, maybe if it hadn't forced the apology from Vince, it could have been this generation's Piper's Pit moment. But not this time. 
It might have helped in the ratings, but it didn't lead to anything. Pillman didn't even get the gesture of being fake fired this time. Austin moved on to Brett and Pillman moved on to healing up. It was a story without an ending. In May 1997, Pillman finally returned to in-ring action and his career finally got something of a reset. WWE used Pillman as a color commentator while his ankle recovered, but they didn't restrict him to the conventional background role. It would have been a misuse of his talent after spending so much money on him. But more importantly, for Pillman, it wasn't feasible. He was never a background player. What are you doing, Brian? Brian, come, oh, come on! Not the fan! Pillman hitting that fan with that pencil right in the face. And now Brian Pillman leaving the broadcast booth and attacking a fan. A ticket-buying fan. This is an assault. Somebody's got to stop him. Somebody please pull Brian Pillman off this kid. Brian Pillman has snapped. He's an absolute lunatic. Oh, what an embarrassing and a tragic situation here in the WWF for a, an athlete to attack a fan is absolutely uncalled for. He's a maniac. On June 28, 1997, WWE re-ran the fan gimmick from ECW. Pillman attacked a fan who was booing him while he was doing ringside commentary. He yanked his poor dude over the railing and ripped off his Austin 316 t-shirt and gouged him in the eye with a pencil, which was a really insidery reference to the Booker Man angle. Remember the phrase, to have the pencil? This was that deliberate. It was that insidery. Just like with the contract thing, Pillman had realized that in playing to the most insider, the most diehard fan base would give him the indie cred, the groundswell of support that would trickle down to the mainstream. And as for the mainstream, I mean, even if you didn't know what the pencil meant, even if you hadn't followed Pillman's contract situation, well, you could see right in front of you that he was being treated like a big deal, that he was acting like a big deal that Pillman was operating on another level. Pillman wasn't ahead of his time so much as he was operating in his own parallel universe. And it was exhilarating. On October 5th, 1997, Brian Pillman died. He was supposed to wrestle at In Your House Bad Blood and he didn't show up. And they eventually found him dead in his hotel room. The next night on Raw, Vince McMahon interviewed Pillman's widow, Melanie. That's a whole different story. It's as problematic as you could possibly think it is, but you can kind of see how someone could take the ethos of Pillman and, without the guiding genius of Pillman, make a decision like that. But anyway, that was the end. Pillman's death was attributed to a heart condition. His father had apparently died from the same thing when Pillman was three. But there have been insinuations that HGH and cocaine and, of course, the painkillers may have played a role, too. Pillman was only 35 years old. I remember, you know, Brian was kind of in a rough place, but we, we had also, you know, reached out and helped Brian. And to our knowledge, you know, he was tested, clean, and then, you know, when we get there, I'll never forget that day, it was, it was a horrible phone call. And Jim Cornette had called the hotel where Brian had stayed the night before. And 
put me on the phone with the manager who let me know that Brian was gone. Everybody was pulling for Brian. And I don't think that there was, there wasn't really the knowledge. There was, you know, whispers. There wasn't the knowledge that, hey, man, Brian's taking all this stuff because when he was around and when he's being tested and when he's going through the paces, he was okay. And it just was a horrible, horrible tragedy. Pro wrestling is a storytelling form, and nobody told stories like Brian Pillman. Pillman understood the sport, the art, better than almost anyone, certainly better than any of his peers. But wrestling is not a solo act. You need partners, opponents, and you need promoters to be on board. So Pillman went out and made himself important, indispensable. He made the wrestling world play by the rules that Pillman himself had established, at least for a few moments in time he did. Pillman 9mm might have been what ended up making him a main eventer, a legendary star. I mean, we'll never know. But even though Vince apologized, even though they memory hold the angle, look at the Attitude Era. Look at the wrestling world that followed. It's pretty clear that from that moment forward, WWE was Pillmanized. There's a fine line between business and private lives. Austin, you've crossed that line. You've made this personal. And now we're operating on a whole different set of rules. I mean, in, in any era, to be able to seize the moment like that, but especially to, to get that kind of attention. It's the name of the game. In, any, in football, in basketball, in hockey, in baseball, in, in, in movies, in television, in streaming, in music, in anything. In politics, isn't it? Hey, the spotlight's on me, and I know how to I know how to make it even bigger and make myself more intriguing and make myself a bigger attraction because of it. And I can increase that spotlight by doing more things like this that follow the path of what I'm doing. What do you think Brian Pillman's ceiling was? Endless. I think that it had brought if Brian had stayed healthy that it, it truly was endless because Brian had the gift of gab and Brian had a believability about him. That the audience was never sure what was going to happen when Brian was around, which kept you interested. It kept you guessing. There was an unpredictability about him that the audience enjoyed. I wrote and recorded this podcast. The show is executive produced by superstar Bill Simmons, Sean the Strangler Fennessy, and Jumpin' Juliet Littman. Our producers are B. Brian Walters, Taskmaster Troy Farkas, Big Papa Pump Ben Cruz, and Vivacious Vikram Patel. Sound design and final mixing by Sweet Scott Somerville. The music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Craig the Animal Gaines and Buddy Jack McCluskey. And fact checking by Rockin' Juliana Ress. Art direction and illustration by me. I'm David Shoemaker, a.k.a. The Mask Man. Thanks for listening.